Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there with me. We'll be starting in verse 35. This is the word of the Lord. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for, this, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day once again and the opportunity to hear from your word this morning. Help us as we seek to learn from our Savior through his acts of prayer, preaching, and healing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in a few short comments, the stage has been set by Mark for us for the identity, the ministry, the mission of Jesus Christ. Indeed, he has answered for us already the question, who is Jesus? He is the Son of God, the Messiah King. Why has he come? He has come to stand in the place of sinners. We see that he has been anointed for that task by the Holy Spirit. He has been identified as the Son in whom the Father is well pleased as he sets out on this ministry. And then we've asked, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And the text continues to answer these questions for us. We saw what it meant to follow Jesus as we looked briefly at his call to the disciples that they hear his call and submit to his authority. Unlike the rabbis of the day who students sought out the teacher and decided who they would study under, not for Jesus, he takes the initiative and he calls his disciples. And as he calls, they follow. They're obedient to his call. And then they participate in, they proclaim his mission, the gospel of the kingdom. We saw then that authority as he taught in the synagogues and the people are amazed at his teaching, that it is not as the scribes teach, but it has original authority and weight to it as only Jesus could. And then in the midst of that teaching, he's confronted with this man with the demonic spirits. And in a single word, Jesus cries out, be silent. And the demon is silent. And we begin to get a glimpse, what exactly is this kingdom that Jesus is bringing, that Jesus is offering, that Jesus is inviting us to enter into? And and we looked at it, and generically, it's the rule and the reign of Christ, that indeed he is king. And so where he rules and he reigns, and where his people are subject to that rule, and where his enemies are being vanquished, there is the kingdom of God. Specifically in the Gospels, the kingdom of God is the arrival of Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. That's why he can say, the kingdom is at hand, because Jesus is here. The kingdom is at hand because I am here. And where Jesus is, he is the king, and there is his kingdom. But then we see through the story after story after story that that Mark is going to relate to us that the kingdom of God also has the idea of the age to come breaking into this present age. It's the future breaking into the present. 
of the promise of forgiveness of sins, of fellowship with the Father, of those promises of diseases healed and, and all sin and sorrow be put, put away, a reversal of the curse. And so his kingdom is here in reality. And while it's not fully known and it is not fully consummated yet, yet in a very real way, that kingdom is here. The future is breaking into the present. The age to come is breaking into the age that's passing away. And so we can call ourselves citizens of a heavenly kingdom, even though we still experience the curse and the fall of this age. And that's the kingdom offer that he makes. And now we're going to see continued demonstration of the kingdom as he vanquishes enemies and as that demon would cry out, why have you come? Have you come to destroy us? And we would know the answer, absolutely. He says so in 1 John that Jesus has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Then you move to that kind of intimate scene right before our passage today where Jesus is speaking with Peter's mother-in-law and they're in a home in a small setting and she has a fever, not the most extraordinary of healings, but Jesus brings healing to her and you see the kingdom marked with this compassion with mercy, with kindness. There's a tenderness to it. And so he is the king of kings, vanquishing darkness, and yet there is an intimacy and a kindness and a warmth about him. All of that finishes up late in the night after this healing and more people come. And that's where we pick up in the, what you just heard read, that Jesus then, after ministering late into the night, gets up early before the sun rises and he heads out to pray. We know Jesus has a short amount of time. His mission is full. And yet, prerequisite to it, at the very most important heart of it, is that he spends time in prayer with the Father. He spends time in prayer before he begins to proclaim and preach. And of course, there's a lesson for us in that in prayer that it's not a matter of when the time is available, but that we make the time to spend a moment with our God in prayer. And as Jesus is praying, you see his disciples come and in a veiled rebuke, what are you doing? There's a crowd that has come to see you. There's a couple things revealed for us in these comments. First of all, in Mark, when it talks about the crowds coming, when it talks about people seeking Jesus and a lot of people coming to see him, it's not a positive thing. The crowds aren't the positive. They're, they're typically in a negative light because all it is is just sort of a shallow interest. They want something from him. They want healing. They want to be given something. They're looking for something. And so they come around because they are interested in him. And yes, Jesus comes and, and he brings healing and he brings things, but we see what is the heart of his kingdom mission, as was just read in verse 38. Everyone's here looking for me? Well, let's go then to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. It is the proclamation of the good news is at the center, at the heart of his kingdom ministry. And so as the crowds gather and then the, the fame is starting to spread and they're looking for something, Jesus moves on to the next town. We see he went throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
And so again, we're reminded the heart of the kingdom, entrance into the kingdom, is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, that forgiveness is offered, that fellowship with God is offered because of who Jesus Christ is and what he has come to do. He has come to stand in our place, take the punishment that we deserve. And with that, we get to these two scenes that we'll look at this morning. Jesus cleansing the leper and Jesus healing the paralytic. If you would, I'll read verses 40 through 45 of chapter 1. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So as is the Mark way with typically little context to what's taking place. He jumps right into this story. And in a real understated way, he underplays just how provocative and offensive really this encounter was with the leper approaching Jesus Christ. In doing so, he's breaking all kinds of laws and he's putting Jesus at risk. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea of leprosy in a modern age where we have so much high-tech medicine and things available to us. But leprosy is a general term, you've probably heard this, general term in the New Testament to all kinds of skin and, and ailments of that way that were really devastating. They were really horrendous. Horrendous. And, At first, it would be painful, and then it kind of attacked the nervous system, and soon people would become disfigured as they start losing all sorts of chunks of skin. Limbs are lost, ears, nose drop off, all without them having much sense of the feeling of it. And so they become these sort of disfigured people, and it's it's a terrible uh, way to die, an incurable disease with really a death sentence. But in that day, it wasn't just the health of it. It was that you became an immediate outcast. You were declared to be unclean and you were driven out of the city. You had to go live among the other lepers, the the other people who who were suffering in that way. You were completely kicked out of the community. Among the living, your life was over. Leviticus, I think it's 13, 14, 15, speaks of the... of the laws of cleanliness and uncleanliness and and leprosy and how that plays into it. And so they would be cast out. You would be driven from everything you know. And you weren't allowed to be near anyone who was clean. It's like hundreds of feet you needed to stay away. And when you did come into the city because you needed something, you were supposed to go about yelling, unclean, unclean. Everyone would step away, get away from you. And in desperation, this leper comes to Jesus. 
And you see, it's not for healing that he asked. He asked to be made clean. I think there we find ourselves, people can find themselves in life in this situation of having a sin that's laid hold of their heart, a pattern of sin, a temptation that they struggle with and they feel like they keep losing to again and again that just grips your heart and makes you feel unclean, unworthy, detached from, away from everyone else. Perhaps you have some rough experiences, some really bad choices, sin in your past. And you just feel that way. I'm an outcast. I'm not part of this community. If people really knew me, there's no way they would be around me. Jesus does not want me near him. We've talked about this. One of the biggest lies of the devil is to go two ways. One, that we don't take our sin seriously and we're nonchalant with it. The other is that it becomes our identity and we think until we make ourselves clean, we can't get anywhere near Jesus. I can't show up with a bunch of of Christians who seem to have it all together and start singing songs to Jesus and start hearing prayers and participate in this community. I know how filthy and unclean I am. And a lot of people live in that prison of thinking, I have to get myself together before I come. I don't fit here. And this leper at the end of himself, finally, in faith, begging for mercy, comes to Jesus. If that's how you feel in your life, then listen to the rest of this story. It's just what you need to hear. So the leper comes to Jesus and we see that he does have faith. He goes, I know, I know you can make me clean if you will. It says in verse 41, moved with pity. Pretty consistently commentators say that pity is, a, is not a great translation there. It's that he was moved. It has really the more idea of like intensity dealing with anger. That it's sort of this sympathy and anger related together. A lot of what you see in Jesus' ministry of this sort of passion and his anger towards sin and his pity and his sympathy towards towards the sinner, towards people. And the suggestion is, it seems right, that just as he sees it and he sees that he's come to set a, 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 to reverse the works of darkness to reverse the curse, and he sees just its ugliness and its effect on this man. He's just moved with sort of anger and pity and passion for this man. He didn't create this world in order that death is just always looming out there, in order that we would know suffering all the way to the grave. And yet because of sin, this is the experience of every man, and he sees it, and he's moved with this sort of anger and sympathy and passion towards this man. And then, extraordinarily, in an equally offensive move to this man approaching him, Jesus reaches out and touches him. Not only is that putting his health at risk, it's also making him ceremonially unclean. He's now become unclean by touching this man. And he reaches out and touches him. And if to answer him, he goes, yes, agrees, I am able, I am sovereign, and I'm also willing. And he heals him. 
And you have this picture of the grace and the mercy of God that abounds so much greater than the sin of man. That who's at risk there is the leprosy, not Jesus. That when he touches uncleanness, he doesn't become unclean. That one becomes clean. That his power and his grace is overwhelming. And with the sinner comes, no matter how unclean, he doesn't keep that one at a distance. He reaches out and touches them. He cares for them. And he has the power to forgive, the power to make us clean. And you see, anyone else, the the law is set up at that point to protect other people from this person. It, It does nothing to bring healing to the unclean person. The law is helpless to do that. It's it's helpless to invite that person back into the community and make them clean. But Jesus Christ, with a touch and a word, overwhelms that uncleanness with his holiness. He makes that sinner right. For us, we see a picture again of the power of the kingdom, of his kingdom authority, of yes, that he has power over sin, or he has power over leprosy and ailments, but he has power over darkness, that he has power to bring home the outcast, to reach out and touch the hurting, and his grace overwhelms that person, and he's not made unclean by the sinner, the opposite takes place. As Jesus does this, he instructs the leper after this demonstration of power. He instructs the leper, now go and go through due process of the law. Yes, Jesus is not bound by the law. Yes, he rose above the ceremonial laws and touching that man, allowing him to come to him. And yet he tells this man, no, go and now walk through the process. Offer the sacrifices that you're supposed to offer according to Leviticus. Go and see the priest. Let him inspect you and he can declare you clean or unclean. And sort of the third shocking thing happens is the man, I don't know if he's just too excited or he's ungrateful or what, but he just bolts and does the exact opposite. Just starts telling everybody, here's what Jesus has done for me. And no matter his intentions in it, God has given a specific message and a specific way of carrying out that message for his kingdom and there's consequences for not doing it according to how God commanded. And because this man went in this way, Jesus is forced out of town because now the crowds are coming again, flocking upon him, not to hear the message of faith and repentance, but to get something from him, to be entertained by him, to get healing, whatever it might be. That's not why he came. He came to proclaim the good news. So this man's disobedience has consequences. It matters, both our message and how we proclaim that message of Christ's kingdom. So then we move on to the second scene. Here Jesus heals the paralytic. We listen as I read chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof from above him. 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So here you have the story, Jesus again, a crowd gathering around him. He's inside now. They're packed in all around him. Can't even get in and out the door. And again, Mark doesn't give a bunch of detail of who any of these people are, but there's a paralytic and he's got four friends and they are determined to get to Jesus. They obviously have faith. They've heard of Christ. They've heard of his power and they have faith that he can bring healing to this one. So letting nothing stop them, they climb up on this roof, open the roof and let the person down in the mattress. We think the pigeons on the roof are distracting. Imagine preaching and someone cutting a hole in the roof and lowering someone down in front of you. I'll take a few pigeons here or there. In case you're wondering what that sound is, that's what it is. It's the pigeons up there finding the sunshine. The roofs that time, it wouldn't have been like they got out, you know, their extension ladders and the asphalt roof. They would have had probably some steps on the outside of the house that would lead to a thatched roof that was hardened over with some mud, a place where they would often eat dinner and fellowship. And so they would pull away this mud and this thatching to open it up. And still a distracting thing while Jesus was in there teaching and preaching. And they lower him down. It's interesting that when they lower him down, the first thing we see is that Jesus saw their faith. He saw it. The first time Mark mentions faith, it's not dealing with someone's feelings, it's not dealing even with someone's thoughts, it's dealing with their actions. We learn something about faith from this, that it, that it isn't just an, an understanding Right? We have our three sort of parts that make up faith. It starts with knowledge. There has to be some sort of truth, some sort of baseline knowledge. And then underneath that is assent. That yes, I agree with that knowledge. I agree with that to be true. But the last piece of it is that fiducia or that trust. That yes, I believe it and I'm putting all my hope and I'm putting my energy into it. I'm, I'm all in on this. Not just something I know and agree with, but something that is going to change the way that I act. And you see that in this this action, this mention of faith, that he saw their faith. 
Not just a theological idea, not just a concept, not just that they agreed with them, but that they were changing their life. They were overcoming any obstacle. They were changing their lifestyle because of their faith. Faith should work that way in our lives. It should work out in action. It should change the choices that we make. It should affect our lives in that way. And so he sees their faith as they lower this one down. And then Jesus, again, instead of just reaching out, touching him and saying you're healed, he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. I think the son there showing his authority. Your sins are forgiven. One commentator as was reading it said, it is here at this moment that the shadow of the cross starts to fall across the ministry of Jesus. I think there's a couple meanings in that. That by saying your sins are forgiven, he said so in front of the scribes, the religious leaders. He's starting to put forward his authority and his mission in a way that is going to be offensive to the religious leaders of the day. When he says forgive your sins, they're thinking only God can do that. That's blasphemy. It's one thing for a miracle worker to show up in town. It's another for someone to come and claim to be sovereign creator and savior of the world. And that's what he's doing right now. And this begins a set of five little series that Mark will jump through of conflict after conflict with these religious leaders as Jesus' authority starts to show itself, as what it means to be, enter the kingdom starts to show itself, his identity starts to show itself. And then we'll return to that again right before his passion is another set of five of these conflicts. And so as the leaders start to turn on him, you'll see already they're starting to think, okay, we got to bring this guy down. But also, I think in the secondly, when we see the shadow of the cross, is that when he begins to offer forgiveness of sins, he's beginning that journey to the cross <laughs> where that promise is fulfilled, where the wrath of God can be satisfied, where he can be both the just and the justifier of the sinner. Because you understand, to forgive sins... God's not just sweeping it under the rug. That's not how God forgives sins. It, we've been told from the beginning, he will let no sin go unpunished. He'll give an account for every sin. That, that's what Moses cries out when God appears before him. He'll let no sin go unpunished, but yet he'll clear the guilt of thousands of many. Someone has to take that punishment. Jesus takes that punishment. So when he forgives sin, when he says your sins are forgiven, he is beginning his journey to the cross where payment will be made that will secure that promise, the forgiveness of sins. And so in a couple ways we begin to see the shadow of the cross truly fall across Jesus in his ministry. <clears throat> it is interesting, the forgiveness of sins and sickness and how they're tied together. And really... They all belong to the curse. Every sin and every sickness and every suffering that you have is a result of sin. Now I want to be careful. I'm not saying a one-for-one -one type of, of equivalent that, you know, you stubbed your toe because you were mean to your wife. Like, it, 
maybe, but, <laughs> but it's not a one-for-one -one equivalent that when something happens, you get sick, something hurt, it's like, oh, I can tell you the sin that brought that about. But it is all because of the curse that we live in a frustrating world where there is injury, where there is decay, and where there is death. It's because of the sin of all men generally that this takes place. And so to say your sins are forgiven or to heal someone of, diseases, someone of a disease is both sort of the kingdom infiltrating and pushing back the curse. And so we see that connection here of, of just the heaviness and, and sin and decay and all that belongs to this age that the kingdom of God is reversing. So Jesus then, he knows <clears throat> the scribes are, are thinking these thoughts about him, that he is blaspheming. And so perceiving it, he turns and he asks them a question. He goes, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? You know, that's not like the most obvious answer to that question. Which one is easier? It depends how you think about it, right? Like it's not an obvious answer, but I think Jesus in verse 10 gives us a little clarification for it. I think what is easier in this setting as he looks around is to say your sins are forgiven. Let's say, you know, I'll pick Taylor. Let's say Taylor's laying here on this, this table and I say, okay, Taylor, your sins are forgiven. Like it's hard for you to judge and measure whether his sins are forgiven. Obviously they're not because I'm not God, but just in this bad illustration you can't judge it. You can't see it. There's nothing that happens right in front of you. And so for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven, in some ways, who's there to prove him wrong? Whereas if he says to this paralytic, hey, get up and walk, well, you're going to see whether he can get up and walk or not. There's more power and authority needs to, needs to take place for that get up and walk, according to the eyes of the crowd. Because you notice when he says your sins are forgiven, it doesn't seem to affect the crowd at all. They're just like, oh, he's not going to heal him, I guess. It's the scribes that catch this and hear it. And so listen to what he says in verse 10. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man, Jesus addressing himself as the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. As if proving, okay, if this is the harder thing for me to do is heal him, then when I heal him, he says it, and immediately the person is healed, it proves the first thing. That not only does he have authority to heal this one, and that he rises and walks home, it proves he also has authority to forgive this person's sin. If he can say the harder thing to prove and prove it, then it proves this, that he has forgiven sins as well. Now, of course, we know the forgiving of sins is going to cost him a lot more than healing this man. And yet, in this context, that's how he's reasoning with them. I'll prove to you, not only did I say forgive sins, I'm going to heal this person so you have something to look at, and that will prove my other statement, that his sins are forgiven. And in doing so, the people are amazed. It's interesting, Jesus calls himself there 
the Son of Man. He introduces that title for himself. The Son of Man is used pretty often, and most of the time it's Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. It's far and away his favorite self-designation. He refers to himself that way often. Who's the Son of Man? We know the Son of Man from the book of Daniel, right? Daniel describes the appearance and the character of the Son of Man as a, a heavenly being, a divine appointed by the Ancient of Days to be the Lord on earth and to receive the kingdom forever. The Son of Man then we see he is one who is going to descend from the heavens, is a heavenly divine being, is a God. He will reign on earth, but he's also going to ascend and be put on a throne and reign forever and ever from the throne. This is Jesus' declaration that he indeed is the fulfillment of that prophecy. That he was, he is God, he was the king, that he is coming now to reign on earth, and that he will reign forever on an eternal throne. All of that's wrapped up in the title, Son of Man. And he's saying the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. It brings to mind those lyrics from Handel's Messiah, taken out of Revelation 11. That the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of Jesus Christ and he will reign forever and ever that's what he is declaring here the son of man has come in power verse 12 the paralytic rose immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying we never saw anything like this Jesus demonstrating his power and healing the leper demonstrating his power and healing this paralytic really actually moves to the heart of the issue what the paralytic really needed what the leper really needed was forgiveness of sins was cleansing and Jesus provides that And no matter how distant and how far and how unclean you feel because of your sin, no matter the scars that it's left on you, Christ invites you to come. He calls you to come. And he doesn't keep you at a distance. He touches you. He pronounces you clean. His his mercy and his grace overwhelms your sin. And there is freeing power in that. If you're still struggling with sin, if there's a temptation, you just find yourself in and in. Christ hasn't given up and cast you out. The the worst thing you can do is just think, until I get this straightened out, I can't keep coming back to Christ. He wants nothing to do with me. That's a lie from Satan. You need to keep coming again and again and ask for grace to fight that sin. Find time to be alone with God in prayer. Pray that he will bring healing, cleansing. Fight that sin. And then that faith, not just a a knowledge, but that faith that changes your life, changes your lifestyle. Through these you see, and we'll conclude with this, just three responses to Jesus. There's that, we'll just call it a shallow enthusiasm. Enthusiasm. Maybe we'll say that. 
That's just the crowds who are interested. They want something from him. They want to find some healing. They're interested in what's going on, so they're flocking around. But you see, if anything, it's just frustrating Jesus because they're missing the real heart of his mission. You have those who are, are proud and resist his authority. Those scribes, what right do you have to come step on our toes to, to have some sort of claim of authority on my life? Then the third response is the response of faith. And those are the ones who realize, I have nowhere else to turn. The law is not going to bring me healing. I, I got nowhere else to turn. I am desperate. I recognize my need and I recognize how ugly it is. And I turn to Christ and there I know forgiveness and cleansing. That's a group we want to be in. What's the immediate response when Jesus comes and proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand? Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. Faith, repentance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for your gospel, which goes forward. Might it go forward with power by your spirit. Lord, if there are any here who hear that word, it's falling on blind eyes, deaf ears, Lord, might by your spirit, by the power of the gospel, you open eyes to see a need of you. Lord, if there's some here who are feeling defeated by sin, Yes, there is a certain amount of discouragement and shame that is right with sin as we, as we do what the Lord commands, forbids us to do. Lord, but if it turns into keeping us away from the Lord, well, that's exactly what Satan would love to see happen in our life. And so, Lord, might we continue to run to you again and again and again and know that where sin abounds, your grace abounds much more. I'll give you just a moment, a couple moments of quiet thoughtfulness invite the